Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 174 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Greenbrier ghost and the ghostly trial that resulted. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stay around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on Paul Smith, Psychic Spy, and remote viewing. But first, in 1897, a woman in West Virginia was murdered. But according to her mother, the woman spoke to her from beyond the grave and revealed what really happened. In the end, the murderer was put on trial and convicted on the testimony of a ghost. So who was it? What happened? And were they really guilty? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? Well, two things. Uh, first, this is a ghost story, so it will involve a death. As always, we'll be keeping things as clinical as possible, but sensitive listeners should be aware. Second, I haven't been able to find a definitive scholarly account of this story, so I've had to rely on the different popular accounts of it that are available with some backup from historical sources like newspapers from the time. As a result, not every detail I'm going to mention is something I can vouch for, but the gist of the story is solid, and it really did happen. Okay, so who does today's mystery involve? The central figure is a woman named Elva Zona Heaster, who was commonly called Zona. She was born in 1876, just 11 years after the Civil War ended. The place she was born was the foot of Little Sewell Mountain, which is one of the Allegheny Mountains in the Appalachians. Specifically, Little Sewell Mountain is in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, which is where Zona lived her entire life. Reportedly, she was fairly plain-looking and rather shy, but as she grew up, the local boys took an interest in her. Zona's mother, Mary Heaster, was a devout Christian woman and screened all of the potential suitors to make sure that they were suitable to court her daughter. Unfortunately, around 1895, Mrs. Heaster made a mistake when she let a particular young man do so. He didn't stay around long, and eight months after he left, Zona gave birth to a child. Being an unwed mother at the time was a serious social stigma, and it may have pulled Mary in different directions regarding who should be allowed to court her daughter. On the one hand, it might make Mary want to be even more careful with her daughter's future boyfriends, but on the other hand, it could create pressure for her to be less choosy, as having a baby would make it harder for Zona to get a husband. However, I don't know that to be the case, because I haven't been able to find out exactly what happened with Zona's baby. Uh, it could have died in infancy, which was common back then, or it could have been put up for adoption. I don't know if she kept it to raise herself or not. 
And if Zona and her mother are the first two figures in our story, who's the next person we need to meet? He's a man named Edward Shue, spelled S-H-U-E, Shue. Mr. Shue was not a native of the area, but was from Pocahontas County, which was the next county to the north. He came into town around September of 1896 and got himself a job as an apprentice blacksmith. He was apparently tall and handsome, and according to author Katie Letcher Lyle, He was a newcomer to Greenbrier County, but from the beginning had a wide swath, as he was, from all reports, good-looking and powerful, charismatic and boastful, and he attracted even more notice than most strangers. And if you want to get an idea of what the two looked like, the artwork we're using for this episode is reported to be a picture of the two of them, though this isn't confirmed. In any event, Edward was also at least 10 years older than Zona, so Mary Heaster was wary when Zona brought him home to meet her. Truth be told, she really didn't like him, but Edward came across as charming. Reportedly, Mary said that he had the face and charm of the devil. And he was able to give satisfactory answers to her questions, so she reluctantly allowed him to court Zona. And within a few weeks, on October 20th, 1896, the two were married. At the time, Zona would have been 19 years old. And where did they live? Edward and Zona moved into a two-story house near a place called Livesey's Mill, which was itself close to the blacksmith shop where Edward was working. It was only about five minutes away. Now we move forward three months in the story to January 22nd, 1897. On this day, Edward went to the blacksmith shop, but at about 10 o'clock in the morning, he went over to the house of a local woman named Jones. He asked if her son, Andrew, could go to his house, collect the eggs from the hens, and see if Zona needed anything brought from the store. According to one account, he gave the boy a quarter, and I checked, and a quarter in 1897 would be worth about $8 today due to the inflation that the government has caused, so it's not an unreasonable amount for a young boy helping with chores like that. Andrew went over to the house and didn't find any eggs, so he turned to the second task. And did Zona have anything for Andrew to get from the store? When he got to the house, Andrew knocked on the door, but he didn't get an answer. He also tapped on the windows, but didn't see anyone inside. He thought Zona might have gone over to a neighbor's and would come back soon, so he let himself inside through the front door. As he came into the living room, he heard the ceiling squeak as if someone was walking around upstairs, so he went to the staircase. At the foot of the staircase, he saw something shocking. It was Zona lying on the floor with her feet together and a hand on her stomach, and she was dead. Did Andrew go upstairs to see why the ceiling had been creaking like someone was walking around on the second floor? No. Once he realized Zona was dead, Andrew raced back to tell his mother, who immediately set out for Edward and Zona's house. Andrew then went to the blacksmith shop and told Edward what he'd found. Edward then rushed home, and he arrived at the house about the same time as Mrs. Jones and discovered that it was true. Zona was dead. There thus was a gap of time when the house was left unattended. That means that if there was anybody up on the second floor, they could have left the house and made their getaway after they heard the boy moving around downstairs. What did Edward do when he got home? 
He was very emotional, and he took Zona's body upstairs and laid her out on a bed, which was a typical thing people would do back then. And that disturbed the crime scene? Yeah, but that's not uncommon for the time. People didn't have the leave the crime scene absolutely alone approach that we do today. And that's understandable because detailed crime scene forensics had not yet been invented. In fact, not even fingerprinting was in general use yet. The first known case where fingerprint evidence was introduced at a trial had only taken place five years earlier in 1892, and that was down in Argentina. Two years later, in 1894, Mark Twain published his book, Puddinhead Wilson, which featured fingerprinting to solve a crime, but that was a work of fiction and people weren't even taking fingerprints regularly at this point. What did Edward do after he took Zona upstairs? Things that were customary for the dead at the time, such as washing her so she'd be clean, you know, since people didn't bathe every day, uh, putting her in good clothes, which in this case was a dress with a high stiff collar, and also putting a veil over her face. Was it normal for a man to do those things at the time? Not really. These were normally done by local women so that a grieving husband wouldn't be burdened with having to do them. Uh, but I've been a grieving husband, and I can understand the impulse. When my wife Renee died, I insisted on being one of her pallbearers at the funeral. That is not traditional for a husband, no doubt in part because a husband might break down in grief and stumble and upset the coffin. But Renee had had health problems all her adult life, and I had spent so much time taking care of her that I was determined to take care of her all the way to the grave, literally. It was my way of showing my love for her and my commitment to her, and so I insisted on being a pallbearer and helping carry her coffin, no matter what the tradition was. Did they summon anyone to examine Zona? Andrew ran to fetch the local doctor and medical examiner, who was a man named George Knapp. No relation, as far as I know, to the Las Vegas television reporter George Knapp, who sometimes hosts Coast to Coast AM. When he arrived, Dr. Knapp found Edward sitting by Zona's bedside. Edward was crying profusely and anxiously caressing her head, which is very understandable for a grieving husband. At one point during the examination, Dr. Knapp noted that there was some slight discoloration on the right side of Zona's neck and on her right cheek. He unfastened the front part of her collar and examined the front part of her neck, but before he examined the back part, Edward became emotional. He jumped up and loudly declared that nobody would ever strangle his lovely wife, which is what Dr. Knapp seemed to be proposing. And there can be other reasons why someone would have discoloration on their neck, especially if they're a young married couple and have been giving each other hickeys or love bites. So the matter can be rather delicate. In any event, Edward was so emotionally agitated that Dr. Knapp concluded the examination and left. What did he list as the cause of death? Interestingly, he, he ended up listing it as eternal faint, which seems to be one of those old school medical diagnoses based on outward appearances. Basically, it would mean that she had fainted and died. Today, we'd have a more precise diagnosis, and what they used to call eternal faint might be something like a stroke, an aneurysm, a cardiac arrest, all of which could have produced something that looked like a lethal fainting spell. But 
Dr. Knapp ended up changing the diagnosis later on from eternal faint to childbirth. Childbirth? Was she pregnant? While it wasn't uncommon for women to die in or shortly after childbirth before modern medicine, it's not entirely clear why he did this. She certainly wasn't giving birth at the time of her death. However, Edward and Zona got married so fast after she brought him home to meet her mother that some people apparently suspected that history was repeating itself and she might have gotten pregnant again. Or at least she might have suspected that she was pregnant, though it would have been very early in the pregnancy. And apparently people who saw Zona at Christmas thought she looked rather large. And Dr. Knapp had treated Zona for women's troubles in the weeks before her death. So there may have been some truth to this, and he may have thought that she died from a pregnancy-related complication, like gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension resulting in high blood pressure and preeclampsia. Not that they would have been able to easily diagnose those at the time. But in any event, Dr. Knapp was trying to be more specific, going from the vague eternal faint diagnosis to what he thought caused the deadly fainting spell, the fact that her body was under strain due to a coming childbirth. What did Zona's parents think when they heard their daughter was dead? Of course, they were horrified. Uh, the death of a child is the worst thing that can happen to a parent, even back then, when a lot of children didn't live to grow up, so parents didn't get to raise all of their children to adulthood. But Zona had grown up. She was 19 years old, and her parents would have expected her to live for many more years since she was out of the danger period. Her sudden passing must have been an absolute shock, and reportedly, her mother said, the devil has killed her. How did they prepare for her burial? Back then, before modern embalming, they buried people quickly, so Zona was laid to rest just a few days later. But first, they performed the usual custom of having the, de having the deceased laid out for people to come and pay their final respects. This was done at Zona's parents' house. Edward stayed during the vigil and showed great devotion towards her body. He sat by the head of the coffin, grieving, and took a protective and comforting attitude toward Zona's body. He placed a small pillow on one side of her head and a rolled-up sheet on the other, saying that these would help her to rest easier. And it's a human universal to do symbolic acts of comfort for the deceased. We found items given to help the deceased, what are known as grave goods, in burials going all the way back to the Stone Age. Edward also tied a scarf around Zona's neck, explaining that it had been her favorite scarf, although that might have been an excuse. For example, if Zona had love nips on her neck, you can imagine the young husband not wanting them exposed to public view. He also was quite protective of Zona during the open casket visitation and didn't want people getting close to her, which would be consistent with that. They then uh, took her to a local Methodist cemetery for burial, and before she was buried, Zona's mother, Mary, took the rolled-up sheet from the coffin and tried to give it to Edward, but he declined it. Something really strange then happened with the sheet. Tell us about that. After the burial, Mary took the sheet home with her and washed it. Back then, people were poor, and they wouldn't throw out a perfectly good sheet. I mean, they were expensive. Uh, but when she put the sheet in the wash basin, the water turned red, 
Then, from the water, the sheet turned pink, and she was unable to get the stain out. Why this happened, I have no idea. Uh, your first thought might be that there was blood on the sheet, but there had not been any blood on Zona's body. Uh, she didn't have any open external wounds. Her heart was not pumping when she was found, and her body had already received the customary bathing, so there should not have been any blood on the sheet. As a result, I don't know why the water would have turned red, but that's what Zona's mother said happened. Uh, she also said that she took it as a sign that Edward had killed her daughter. Okay, well, before we get to that twist in the story, let's take a moment here to thank our patrons who make our show possible, including Jim W., Luca C., Mark T., Theo V., and Paul B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters. Accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearVentoLaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. So, Jimmy, what did Mary do once she concluded that Edward had killed her daughter? Did she have any evidence of that? Nothing major, apparently, but at least in hindsight, somebody said that they thought Zona's head wobbled unusually when they moved the body for burial. With that and the high-necked dress and the scarf and the discoloration that Dr. Knapp had seen, it would be consistent with the idea of Zona being strangled. And in addition to wanting to be discreet about love bites, Edward's protectiveness could suggest he was the one who strangled her and was trying to cover it up. But this wasn't proof, and there was evidence pointing the other way. You'll remember that the 11-year-old boy, Andrew Jones, thought he'd heard someone walking around upstairs just before he found the body. And there was a gap when he went to fetch his mother and Edward, and if the killer had been lurking upstairs, he could have easily gotten away, like I said, upon hearing the boy moving around downstairs in a panic when he found Zona. Um, and based on his examination of the body, Dr. Knapp and determined that the cause of death was pregnancy-related. But being a devout woman, Mary Heaster turned to prayer, and her prayers were answered. According to Pat Fitzhugh in his book, Ghostly Cries from Dixie, Four weeks after the funeral, severe chills awakened Mrs. Heaster late one night. Her entire body shaking, she glanced at the wood stove near her bed. The fire was roaring, but the air around her was bitterly cold. She could even see her breath. She got out of bed and checked the windows. No cold air was coming in. She crawled back into bed and pulled up the covers. Then suddenly the bedroom lit up. The wood stove was the only known source of light in the room, but the light she saw was much brighter. She blotted her watery eyes with the cloth of her pillow and then looked around the room. Zona's apparition was standing at the foot of her bed. 
Zona's broken and severely bruised neck had swelled considerably, and her face, now pale blue, had become large and puffy. She then spoke to her mother, giving her the account of how Edward Shue had strangled her, twisted her head, and snapped her neck, and then pushed her down the stairs to make her death look like an accident. Shue had become angry with Zona because she didn't cook any meat for dinner one night. The next morning at breakfast, he complained about the biscuits being cold. After an intense, heated argument, Zona ran upstairs. Edward followed her. Catching her at their bedroom door, he turned her body toward him and shook her violently. Her head pounding against the door, she tried kicking him, but to no avail. It took Zona's ghost four nights to relate the full account of her death. She appeared in the same fashion each night, talking for 30 minutes and then disappearing. After the ghost bade farewell, Mrs. Heaster wrote everything down she had been told. She then went to the local prosecutor, a man named John Alfred Preston, and asked him to file charges against Edward. Preston didn't say if he believed Mary about the ghostly encounters, but he did agree to investigate. And how did he go about doing that? Well, for a start, he checked with Dr. Knapp. Uh, Knapp mentioned how Edward became emotional when he commented on the bruising on Zona's neck. He also mentioned that Edward had been angry when people came near her coffin at the funeral. Preston then filed the paperwork needed to have Zona's body exhumed for an autopsy. How did Edward react to that? He was furious and demanded that his wife be allowed to rest in peace. And that's not suspicious. Lots of people don't want their loved ones dug up and autopsied. The very thought of a loved one being autopsied can make one squeamish. Also, no doubt much to Edward's displeasure, a story soon appeared in the local newspaper entitled Foul Play Suspected. This was the first time the community was alerted that this might be a crime because initially the death had been ruled natural due to a pregnancy complication. And Edward would be understandably enraged at having his reputation trashed in the newspaper like that, especially if he really was a grieving husband who knew he was innocent. But he couldn't stop the autopsy, which began on February 22nd. As Pat Fitzhugh writes, Zona's body was exhumed in late February and taken to a nearby schoolhouse for examination by Dr. Knapp and two other physicians. Five witnesses were present, including Edward Shue, who sat in a corner whittling a stick and complaining about his wife's privacy being violated. The autopsy reportedly took three days, which is a really long time. Today, autopsies are typically done in a few hours. But when the report appeared in March the next month, it stated that the autopsy found that the bruises on Zona's necks were finger marks, that her neck had been broken that her stomach contained the remains of her last breakfast, which was something that was consistent with the ghost's report that the crime had taken place just after breakfast. The authorities then took Edward into custody and charged him with murder. You often hear it said on crime shows that when a married woman is killed, it's usually her husband. Is that true? You do often hear that on TV, but... It appears that it's simply not true. I did some checking, and based on the statistics I was able to find, which were from 2002, it's actually usually not the husband. According to statistics published by the U.S. Department of Justice, about 36% of murders are not solved. 45% of murders are done by a friend or acquaintance. 26% of murders are done by a stranger. 
and only 8.6% of murders are done by a spouse and 7.3% by a boyfriend or girlfriend. So actually, the husband did it is not what the statistics indicate. And if this was as true in 1897 the way it was in 2002, Edward would not be the logical suspect just because he's the husband. What happened after they took him into custody? People decided to form a lynch mob, as you do in the 19th century. Uh, the mob came to the jail where he was being held and demanded that he be turned over to them. But the sheriff's deputies said no, because sheriff's deputies. And they arrested and charged the four leaders of the lynch mob for their trouble. <laughs> so some really interesting things started to emerge about Edward Shute. Tell us what happened. Well, for a start, they found out that his real name was not Edward Shue. Instead, he bore the prodigiously long proper name Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. And before being known as Edward, he had just been known as Trout. Also, Zona wasn't his first wife, or even his second. According to author Katie Letcher Lyle, Trout Shoe's first marriage to Allie Esteline Cutlip in 1885 produced a child, Goethe Lucretia. She reportedly beat his wife, Esty, so badly that a group of vigilantes dragged him out of bed one winter night and threw him through the ice in the Greenbrier River. It is unclear whether this incident occurred before or after the birth of their baby girl in February 1887. The marriage ended in divorce four years later, while Trout Shue was in the state penitentiary serving time for horse stealing. He then married wife number two. In June of 1894, Shue married again, this time to Lucy Ann Tritt, from near Alderson. They lived with his parents on Droop Mountain near Hillsboro, where Lucy died less than eight months later. There was no investigation, and the Pocahontas Times stated only that she died suddenly. Only later, when Shue was accused of murdering Zona, did four different stories about Lucy's death circulate among the community. And here's one of those stories. According to Pat Fitzhugh... In 1894, he met Lucy Tritt and married her a short time later. The couple lived with Trout's parents for several months before deciding to build a house atop Droop Mountain in nearby Greenbrier County. Lucy went missing one afternoon while the couple was still building their house. A bear hunter found her lying face down in a nearby ravine the next morning and notified authorities. Trout Shue, who had never bothered to report his wife's disappearance, told the authorities that she had accidentally slipped over a cliff while being chased by a rattlesnake. The authorities, who apparently knew very little about rattlesnakes, offered Shu their condolences and then left. So during his time with wife number one, Trout was apparently guilty of both spousal abuse and horse thieving. And then wife number two has a mysterious sudden death, with one of the reported stories being that she fell off a cliff while she was being chased by a rattlesnake, even though rattlesnakes do not normally chase people. They strike people uh, or strike at people, but they don't typically follow them. It was after the death of his second wife that Trout Shoe decided to move to a new county and become known as Edward Shoe, even though Edward was not part of his birth name, Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. In light of these revelations, how was Edward feeling about his chances at trial? 
quite well, actually. Uh, you'll recall that he was regarded by the locals as being a boastful individual, and he did not disappoint in this case. He seemed quite confident that he would be acquitted. He reportedly boasted about the lack of evidence against him. I mean, everything was circumstantial. There was no witnesses. And he did have a point about this. Uh, the boy... Andrew Jones uh, thought that he'd heard somebody upstairs when Edward was known to be at the blacksmith shop. There was nothing like what we today would call forensic evidence linking him to the crime. There were no eyewitnesses to who committed the crime, at least not any living ones. And the only supposed eyewitness testimony came from Zona's mother's supposed visions of her daughter's ghost. And Mary Heaster never liked Edward from the beginning. So discounting the ghost testimony, all of the evidence was purely circumstantial. On the other hand, Edward didn't help his case when he reportedly boasted that he'd like to marry four more women before he died because he liked the idea of having seven wives, uh, which, if you think about it, would put him one wife ahead of the six wives of King Henry VIII, and it would put him dead even with the man from St. Ives who had seven wives with seven sacks with seven cats with seven kids. So what happened at the trial? The trial began on June 22nd, almost six months to the day after Zona had been killed. Many people thought that Dr. Knapp's autopsy would be enough to convict Edward, especially in light of his suspicious behavior. After all, Edward dressed the body in a high-necked dress. He freaked out when Dr. Knapp commented on the bruising on her neck, causing him to cut short the examination. He tied the supposedly favorite scarf around her neck, and he didn't let other people get close to the body during the viewing. But now there was a courtroom twist. What happened? It turned out that although Dr. Knapp was licensed to practice medicine, he was not licensed to practice autopsies. As a result, the autopsy report was excluded from the evidence and ruled inadmissible at trial. And what did the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, what did he do? He went with the witnesses he had. Uh, this included Mary Heaster, Zona's mother. But they didn't want her talking about the ghost of her daughter because of how the jury might react. Instead, they confined their questioning, the prosecutors did, to just the normal, non-supernatural things that Mary knew about Edward. How did that work for them? At first, it worked fine. But after the prosecution examines a witness, the defense gets to cross-examine them. And this is where the prosecution regarded things as starting to fall apart. The defense decided to bring up the ghost in an attempt to show that Mary Heaster was not a credible witness. They wanted her to testify about her daughter's ghost had appeared to her so that it would make everything else she said seem less credible. According to the July 1st, 1897 issue of the Greenbrier Independent, this is what happened in the questioning. The defense attorney begins by asking what led to the exhumation and postmortem autopsy of Zona's body. I have heard that you had some dream or vision which led to this postmortem examination. They saw enough themselves without me telling them. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad that she didn't have no meat cooked for supper. But she said she had plenty and said that she had butter and apple butter, apples and named over two or three kinds of jellies, pears and cherries and raspberry jelly. And she says I had plenty. And she says 
Don't you think that he was mad and just took down all my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them? And she told me where I could look down back of Aunt Martha Jones' place in the meadow in a rocky place that I could look in a cellar behind some loose plank and see. It was a square log house and I was hewed up to the square. And she said for me to look right at the right hand side of the door as you go in and at the right hand corner as you go in. Well, I saw the place just exactly as she told me and I saw blood right there where she told me. And she told me something about that meat every night she came, just as she did the first night. She came four times and four nights, but the second night she told me that her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, and it was just as she told me. Now, Mrs. Heaster, this sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it? No, sir, and there is not yet either. And this was not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir, it was no dream, for I was as wide awake as ever I was. Then if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what had happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Do you think that you actually saw her in flesh and blood? Yes, sir, I do. I told them the very dress that she was killed in, and when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the very next time she came back to me, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed that she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me that she did everything she could, and I am satisfied that she did do all that, too. Now, Mrs. Heaster, don't you know that these visions, as you term them or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew she could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. Edward gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have, but I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. I wanted her own ring, and he would not let me have it. Mrs. Heaster, are you positively sure that these are not four dreams? <laughs> yes, sir, it was not a dream. I don't dream when I am wide awake, to be sure, and I know I saw her right there with me. Are you not considerably superstitious? No, sir, I'm not. I was never that way before, and I am not now. Do you believe the scriptures? Yes, sir, I have no reason not to believe it. And do you believe the scriptures contain the words of God and his Son? Yes, sir, I do. Don't you believe it? Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say that these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood? I am not going to say that for I am not going to lie. Then you insist that she actually appeared in flesh and blood to you upon four different occasions. Yes, sir. Did she not have any other conversation with you other than upon the matter of her death? Yes, sir. Some other little things. Some things I've forgotten. Just a few words. I just wanted the particulars about her death, and I got them. When she came, did you touch her? Yes, sir. I got up on my elbows and reached out a little further as I wanted to see if people came in their coffins. And I sat up and leaned on my elbows, and there was light in the house. It was not a lamplight. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left this world. It was just after I went to bed, and I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. Had you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived? No, sir, I had not but I found them just exactly as she told me it was. 
and I never laid eyes on that house until since her death. She told me this before I knew anything of the buildings at all. How long was it after this, when you had these interviews with your daughter, until you did see the buildings? It was a month or more after the examination. It's been a little over a month since I saw her. Despite the defense team's hope to discredit Mary by having her tell her story of the ghost, it didn't seem to work. Apparently, the jury either believed her or believed the other evidence that had been presented in the court. This included testimony from Edward himself. According to the July 1st edition of the Greenbrier Independent, Shu was on the stand all Tuesday afternoon. He was given free reign and talked at great length, was very minute and particular in describing unimportant incidents, denied pretty much everything said by other witnesses, said the prosecution was all spite work, entered a positive denial of the charges against him, vehemently protested his innocence, calling God to witness, admitted that he had served a term in the pen, declared that he dearly loved his wife, and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony, manner, etc. made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. After closing arguments were made, the case was turned over to the jury for deliberation, and according to the July 8th edition of the Greenbrier Independent, After an elaborate argument of the evidence by Messrs. Gilmer and Preston for the state, and James P.D. Gardner and Dr. Rucker for the accused, the case of the state versus E.S. Trout Shoe was given to the jury last Thursday afternoon, and the jury, after being out one hour and ten minutes, returned into court with a verdict of murder in the first degree, as charged in the indictment, but recommending that the accused be punished by imprisonment, which means under the law that he be confined in the penitentiary for the term of his natural life. Defense attorney Dr. Rucker entered a motion for a new trial, but this was withdrawn the next morning, and Shu will be duly sentenced before the court adjourns. Though the evidence was entirely circumstantial, the verdict meets general approval as all who heard the evidence are satisfied of the prisoner's guilt. After the murder, Shu had every opportunity to make his escape, as four weeks elapsed before he was arrested and put in jail. The fact that he did not do so was explained by prosecuting attorney Mr. Gilmer in his argument by showing that Shu was all the time laboring under the impression that he could not be convicted on circumstantial evidence and felt secure in knowing that there was no witness but himself to the crime. This, Mr. Gilmer argued, showed not a lack of sense but information, and accounts for Shu's presence at the inquest, and his oft-repeated remark that they could not show he did it. So apparently the myth that you hear on crime TV shows that you can't be convicted on circumstantial evidence was also around back in 1897, and it was just as false then as it is now. People get convicted on circumstantial evidence all the time. You simply don't need a witness to give direct evidence in every case. And in fact, all the forensic evidence that people are so impressed with today is circumstantial evidence. By the way, we'll have a future episode on how modern forensic evidence isn't nearly as reliable as people think it is. In any event, Edward Trout Shue was convicted of murder, and the testimony of his wife's ghost had been admitted in court, apparently the first and perhaps the only time that this has happened in U.S. history. He was then sentenced to life in prison. What happened after the sentencing? 
apparently a good number of the good people of Greenbrier County were of the mind that life in prison was not a sufficient punishment. They instead concluded that Edward needed killing. On this premise, they formed another lynch mob. And according to the July 15th edition of the Greenbrier Independent, There have been whispers and rumors that mob violence might be a possibility, a portion of our citizens insisting that the death penalty should have been imposed. On Sunday last, this sentiment crystallized, and a small mob was gathered in the Meadow Bluff District for the purpose of coming to the county jail, taking Shu out, and hanging him. It seems that the campground, eight miles west of town, was appointed as the rendezvous, and ten o'clock at night at the time for the lynchers to assemble. Mr. George M. Hara, who lives in that neighborhood, got wind of the affair Sunday afternoon, and he mounted his horse and carried the information to Sheriff Nickel, who was at home at Meadow Bluff. Mr. Nickel and Mr. Hara then started for Lewisburg and had to pass the campground where the lynchers were to assemble. When they arrived there, which was about nine o'clock, several of the mob were already there. They passed in safety, but were recognized. Several minutes later, four of the mob pursued and, after an exciting chase, overtook them presented pistols, and demanded that they stop. The sheriff drew his pistol and was in the act of firing when he recognized his assailant and, not desiring to hurt or kill him, concluded to try moral suasion. He and Harris surrendered and were taken back to the residence of Mr. D.A. Dwyer, where, after considerable parleying, the sheriff succeeded in inducing them to disband and return to their homes. They were provided with a stout new rope, were armed with Winchesters and revolvers, and numbered from ten to twenty as far as could be seen, the most of them keeping in the background in the shadows of the trees. The prisoners' shoe, however, would have been safe had they come on to town. A fishing party, coming from Big Clear Creek, had passed the campground before sundown and in some way got an intimation of the intended lynching. They notified Deputy Sheriff John G. Dwyer, who took the prisoners to a place of safety in the woods a mile or two outside the town. The authorities have taken steps to identify and arrest the lynchers, and most, if not all, will sooner or later be in the toils of the law. Shu was taken to the penitentiary Tuesday morning in the custody of Sheriff Nickel and Deputy Dwyer. So the new lynch mob was disbanded, and Shu was taken to the penitentiary, where he remained for the rest of his life. And how long was that? Not very. He died on March 1st, 1900, just two and a half years later, apparently from an epidemic, and he was buried in an unmarked grave in a local cemetery. So since he died from an epidemic or a pestilence, for him it was a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock. Although since he was not sentenced to death, he was not waiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock from a cheap and chippy chopper on a big black block. Uh, that's a reference to the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, The Mikado, and we'll have a link to the song so you can hear it for yourself. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Greenbrier ghost? There are two that we need to consider. First, did Edward really kill Zona? And second, did Zona's ghost really appear to her mother? Okay, what can we say about the first question from the reason perspective? Did Edward kill Zona? I think so. I think the jury got it right on this. Uh, He's a man with a criminal background whose second wife died suspiciously within a few months of their marriage. Then he moves, takes a new name, gets married, and the third wife also dies suspiciously within just a few months of their marriage. Uh, 
and he himself behaved suspiciously with many witnesses saying that he acted inappropriately for the customs of the time, that he did things to conceal Zona's broken neck, and that he tried to keep people away from her body. All of that adds up to a strong likelihood that he was the murderer. What about the person Andrew Jones thought he heard walking about upstairs? If this report is accurate, and I have not found it in the newspapers of the time, only in popular retellings of the story, then it could have been the house creaking on its own due to the temperature fluctuations that occur during the day. Either that or Shu had an unknown accomplice, though I think the natural creaking would be more likely. And the report simply may not be true, and Andrew never said this. It could be a detail that's popped up in the retellings. All right, that moves us to the faith perspective. What can we say here? Did Zona's ghost really appear to her mother? This one is harder to determine. According to the Christian faith, our spirits do survive death. And according to Catholic teaching, God does sometimes allow their spirits to manifest to the living. Uh, for more on that, you can go back and listen to episode one on ghosts, episode 115 on the wizard clip, episode 164 on the Border Patrol ghost, and also episode 84 on private revelation. So it's not at all impossible that God allowed Zona to manifest to her mother and provide evidence against her killer. You know, providing evidence against her killer is precisely the sort of thing you would expect in this situation. However, just because it's possible doesn't mean it's what happened in this case. Here's the perspective of author Katie Letcher Lyle. Believing in a rational world where the dead stay dead. I wondered where Mrs. Heaster got the ghost story and why she invented or dreamed up such a thing. Why weren't the suspicions of her neighbors and her own misgivings enough to take to the prosecuting attorney? Why did she need the drama of a ghost? Mrs. Heaster lived until 1916 and never recanted her story. My assumption finally was that she knew the blacksmith to be clever, unprincipled, and persuasive. If he'd murdered once, he could murder again. Perhaps she feared that if no one validated her accusations, Shu would prove extremely dangerous. So, pretending to receive the news directly from Zona, she could appeal to the superstitions of her mountaineer neighbors and get a lot of public attention. Mrs. Lyle states that she doesn't believe ghosts appear to people, the dead stay dead, in her words, so she's not open to the idea that Zona may have really appeared. However, she has identified two other possible explanations. First, that Mary dreamed the appearances, which is what the defense attorney tried to suggest to her as wish fulfillment or confirmation bias dreams. And second, that Mary simply made up the story to get the case reopened and expected that people would take her seriously, or at least seriously enough to accomplish getting the case reopened. Unlike Mrs. Lyle, I'm not bothered by the idea of ghosts appearing to people, and I especially would not be bothered by the idea of the ghost of a murdered woman appearing to a relative to identify the killer bring justice to him, and keep him from killing again. I'm not saying it happens often, but I can't rule out the possibility in principle. Unfortunately, I also can't say whether one of the other two views, that Mary just dreamed it or made it up, are correct, or whether Zona actually did appear. So I'm afraid that remains a mystery. 
So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Greenbrier ghost? I think that Edward Shue really did kill his wife, Zona. I think that it's possible for God to allow ghosts to appear to people. I find it fascinating that here we have a court case where ghostly testimony was introduced and the killer successfully convicted whether based directly on that testimony or not. And I ultimately don't know whether Zona really appeared to her mother, whether her mother dreamed it, or whether her mother made it up in a desperate attempt to get the authorities to take another look at her daughter's killer. What further resources can we offer on this uh, mystery, Jimmy? Uh, we'll have a link to Pat Fitzhugh's book, Ghostly Cries from Dixie, although West Virginia really isn't Dixie, but there are other stories in the book, too. Uh, also, the Department of Justice's family violence statistics. Uh, we'll have a link to those from 2002, and you want to see page 17 in particular. We'll also have an article written by Katie Letcher Lyle uh, called The Greenbrier Ghost. It starts on page 30 of the magazine we'll have a link to. Uh, we'll have a link to local newspaper articles on the case, including the July 15th edition of the Greenbrier Independent. And we'll have a link to the song from the Mikado that I referenced earlier uh, being performed by the Stratford Festival in Canada. Excellent. So we, as I mentioned before, we do have some mysterious feedback this time on the episode of uh, your interview, fantastic interview with Paul Smith. Uh, Two Psychics. episodes. Yeah, two episodes. That's right. It was a two episode. And uh, so Paul Smith on his psych being a psychic spy and remote viewing. And the first feedback comes from Brian on YouTube, who says faces heart, heart, heart. I'm not sure why, but it's great to see you all talk and not just hear you all talk. Yeah, uh, a lot of people uh, have enjoyed the video that we're beginning to experiment with. Uh, it's taken us a while, just like, you know, if you go back and listen to the very earliest episodes of Mysterious World. We don't have all the pieces in place and the sound quality isn't what it is now and things like that. So there's a bit of a learning curve, but we're trying that with video now to add that to the experience for those who would like a video version of the podcast. Right. And oh, I should say we're not at the point of doing it every episode yet, but we are taking <laughs> steps. And if you're listening to this one as a our regular podcast, uh, this one will be available as video as well on YouTube. So you go check it out there. Uh, Vicky C on YouTube writes, Jimmy and Dom puts out another interesting video. The audience, you have faces because that was always the real mystery here at Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Well, <laughs> I guess I guess in from a certain point of view, sure. <laughs> Junk Jack 101 on YouTube says we should get an episode on the secret to growing a majestic beard. Jimmy clearly has experience. Well, it's actually pretty simple. I, we don't need a whole episode on that. I can tell it to you right now. You uh, stop cutting your beard and then you carry on not cutting your beard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Jeremy on YouTube writes, thank you for the episodes on remote viewing, Jimmy. All of them have been fascinating. In the first episode of The Two with Paul Smith, Paul Smith mentioned the USSR spending considerable money on their own psychic spy program. Do we know anything more about this? We do. Um, there, we know, in fact, I was uh, watching a discussion with Paul Smith just yesterday where he mentioned that before we even got into this, the uh, Russians had spent millions of millions of dollars, not rubles, uh, on their program. Um, I There's a book by Edward May, Edwin May, among others, called East. 
ESP wars east and west that deals with this. Uh, it's also mentioned in other books uh, like Paul Smith's own History of the Stargate program called Reading the Enemy's Mind. And we uh, should be having an episode on the Russian effort in the future. Uh, theirs was significantly bigger than ours. At any one time, we had less than a dozen remote viewers, but they had over a hundred at a single time. Wow. Uh, I should mention that uh, if you become a patron of uh, the StarQuest at the $10 level or above, you can get a, as from a gift from us, a gift of Paul's book, Reading the Enemy's Mind. So uh, think about yeah. that. And that's the definitive history of the Stargate program. So it's well worth reading. Yes. Uh, speaking of Patreon, Sean, one of our patrons on Patreon, wrote, So I was a little confused when he said that Kiki was captured in the U.S. and then transported across the border. He was kidnapped in Guadalajara. Is he disputing that and saying he was really taken in the U.S.? Uh, I would have to check the facts of this case. This is referring, this is a reference to one of the earliest cases that the Fort Meade team, or at least Paul's part of Paul's phase of the Fort Meade team were involved in, where a, uh, a, a U.S. drug agent was captured. Um, I don't have the details of that at hand, and I suspect any discrepancies were due to the fact that Paul didn't have them at hand and he was going by memory. Okay. Irwin wrote on Facebook, based on the interview, Paul seems like a genuine guy with good and pleasant personality. Yeah, I I really think so. I had that impression uh, of Paul at a distance before I uh, before I ever contacted him and in all the interactions I've had, he's he's been nothing but a polite and a gentleman who's very reasonable and gentle and at times tells jokes. Uh, Kenny on Facebook says almost finished this one so far. One of the best episodes yet. Thank you so much, Kenny. Uh, Jason wrote on Facebook. Great episode. Although whenever Jimmy Akin said phenomena, I started to sing that Muppet Show song, Manamana, which will now be in my head until the day I die. And thank you, Jason. It's now in my head. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's what in older style English is called a maggot or in modern English based on the German is called an earworm. Uh, it, it's a tune that can get stuck in your head. It actually didn't start with the Muppet Show. If I recall correctly, it's from an Italian movie originally. Or oh, something wow. like that. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an occupational hazard listening to Mysterious World. We're going to talk about phenomena. Dee, 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 dee. <laughs> phenomena. <laughs> dee, 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 dee. Curse you, Jimmy Aiken. All right. <laughs> we Helen have an episode on, on curses, so you already know yes. what I think of those. Uh, and I, I, I did not mean it as a real one, so <laughs> don't, don't take it badly. Uh, Helen wrote on Facebook, I thoroughly enjoyed this well-balanced, informative episode. We are indeed part of a mysterious world. Yeah, and uh, th I think that the evidence for psychic functioning, including remote viewing, is one of the most mysterious parts of it. Uh, initially, based on the secular vibe in our culture. I had assumed that there really wasn't a lot of evidence here, but after digging into it, it's like, no, there is. I need to take this more seriously than I had. Hmm. Uh, Bubba writes on Facebook, those were balanced, fair, and interesting shows. In regard to remote viewing, I remember listening to Ed Dames years ago on the Art Bell Show and wondering about remote viewing. He was always a good guest on the show. 
crazy, but interesting to listen to. Ed, yeah, Ed Dames is another one of the Fort Meade viewers, although he really didn't do that much viewing. He was more a monitor um, and did some training. But um, but after the after he left the program, he did go public in a big way. He's appeared on Coast to Coast AM a whole bunch of times. And he was for a while a kind of the one of the main public faces of remote viewing. But subsequently, uh, others have kind of stepped up, including other people from both the civilian side and the Fort Meade unit uh, to talk about their experiences. And so now we have more of a balanced uh selection of different perspectives to learn from uh, oh ed, and ed oh. as we mentioned in the in in the interview with paul smith ed dames is kind of famous for making doomsday predictions that <laughs> don't always happen <laughs> right well not yet anyway yeah. <laughs> ed in new mexico wrote on youtube very interesting interview with major smith looking forward to the second half I wonder if there are still programs going on in our government or military that continue to tr try to develop remote viewing and psychic spying capabilities. So word is that uh, Ingo actually trained a second group of people who would never be heard from. And so they apparently were from some other classified program that has not come to light. Um, Ingo apparently uh, confirmed that in uh, private conversation with Paul. Also, word is from multiple sources that after 9-11, the government started getting back into this, as you would expect it would after 9-11. Uh, the details of any ongoing program are not known. Uh, I do know that some of the Fort Meade viewers were asked by the government to after 9-11 to do some at least occasional missions, but there's also uh, remote viewing missions, but there's also um, there are also reports of something more organized than that as well. Uh, but we'll be talking about those things on future episodes. One of the things I have uh, plans to do is interview as many people as I can over the course of time, but interview as many people as I can who are connected with Stargate, either the civilian or the military side, um, to kind of do an oral history of the project. And different people have different perspectives, and I want to be fair and balanced to all of them. Cool. Uh, S. Madrano commented on YouTube, has this professional psychic ever had impressions of UFOs or aliens? Uh, Paul is somewhat, or at least historically, has been somewhat skeptical of remote viewing results regarding UFOs and aliens. They're what he calls anomaly targets. Uh, and because you can't get feedback on them and because there's the possibility of having uh, other people's beliefs interfering with the remote viewing results, he's been rather cautious about um, about such claims. He said he kind of holds him at arm's length. He doesn't dismiss him, but he doesn't just say, oh, this must be true either. However, um, he has somewhat more recently um, lent, had experiences with remote viewing that gate led him to give at least somewhat more credibility to the uh, claim that uh, aliens may be visiting Earth. But okay. I don't have the details on that. I just know that he's he, even though he continues to be cautious regarding these claims that he has had some viewing experiences that led him to think, OK, maybe there's something actually here. Ooh, interesting. 
Uh, Catherine wrote on YouTube, Paul stated, feedback is essential to learning remote viewing. This statement is fundamental, as Paul stated, for progressing forward in future sessions. For me, without feedback, I would be unable to determine if I had used the essential structure or functions within a session, along with understanding how analytical overlays had played a part in the outcome. There are those times, for instance, as in operational remote viewing, the feedback may never be given, or it may be quite some time before it ever is. However, especially as a beginner, it's what you look forward to in finding out the income of your set, the outcome of your session, and if you hit the target. Excellent interview, Jimmy and Paul. Thank you, Catherine. And as you can tell from her comment, Catherine is a member of the remote viewing community. So I was glad to see that these episodes uh, got some interest from people who actually do remote viewing. And yeah, I can just imagine if if I was trying to remote view a target as a beginner, I would want to know if I got it right or not. Uh, right. Feedback would be very, very important to me. Um, and so thank you so much, Catherine. Uh, All is Grace writes on YouTube, Paul Smith was a great guest. I'd love to see other interviews where applicable. Yeah, and uh, I, I hope and plan to bring Paul back on the show. He's got uh, a good bit to say about other subjects, and he's been very open uh, to coming back. So I hope to have him in the mix in the future, definitely. Uh, Brooke wrote on YouTube, I hate to I had to laugh when Paul Smith complimented Jimmy on doing his research. I have that reaction nearly every week. He seems like a pretty cool guy at any rate. I think Paul's a very good guy. And I was very uh, I was very uh, pleased, very gratified when he complimented me on doing my research. I recently had that experience with another uh, person I interviewed who's connected with Stargate, who does not normally give interviews, uh, but. Uh, I, he and I know someone in common and he agreed to do an interview with me. And he also was impressed by the, uh, fact I actually knew what I was talking about when interviewing him. Excellent. Uh, Bobak Gabriel on YouTube wrote, interesting. I'm an Orthodox Christian. For us, RV is only one of the gifts of the Holy Ghost once we connect to it. Other gifts once we connect to the Holy Ghost are healing, teleportation, longevity, reading people at a glance, etc. Basically, the Orthodox hermits are all copies of Ben Kenobi in some way. Well, thank you, Bobak uh, Gabriel. I uh, I would love to have documentation where I could uh, research more about that. And that's a general note to everybody in the audience. Anytime you have a topic you'd like covered or explored here on the show, um, we love getting your suggestions. But even more, I love getting resources that I can use to do research. So by all means, please send me links. Uh, to articles and uh, videos and books that I can use as part of my research project process. If you've already pre-screened something and concluded this is this has some useful information in it, it helps me out. Yeah, if you have resources, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do that topic right away, but it may push it higher on the list. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes it easier. The, the it Some things like, uh, you know, it took me a long time to do the wizard clip ghost story because I didn't have good resources on it. Once I got the resources, I could push it up the schedule and we could do it. And we do have I have we have this massive spreadsheet that yes. uh, that I keep with lots of links to books and videos and um, and articles on the web precisely so that I can keep track of the resources I'm going to use when I do an episode. Uh, Anthony writes on YouTube, while I was listening, specifically while you discussed remote viewing aliens and Bigfoot, I had the thought, 
Wait, what if scholars or archaeologists could use RV? We could potentially see if any of the original Hebrew texts of Baruch or First Maccabees still exist, or the writings of St. Papias, or if any more of Origen's writings survived Justinian's purge in a library somewhere, or a whole new collection like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Indeed, and things like this have been done, uh, not specifically with the works you mentioned, but there is a famous project that I'm sure we'll talk about in the future known as the Alexandria Project, where remote viewing was used in Alexandria, Egypt, to unearth some antiquities. Same thing's been done in Japan. It's been done with shipwrecks. Uh, it's been done in other situations, and since I've gotten to, even though not being a remote viewer, I've gotten to know folks in the remote viewing community. I've actually sat in on a couple of sessions where a gentleman was proposing a project to go after in Egypt uh, some ancient texts that were connected with early Christianity. And it, it, it so happened. I know something about ancient texts connected early <laughs> with early Christianity. So I was actually a. I was able to contribute to that discussion. And one of my contributions was, let's find Papias's exposition on the Logia of the Lord. It's my all-time most wanted <laughs> lost book to be rediscovered, or set of five lost books to be rediscovered. So I, I put a bug in their ear and said, that one would be really cool if you could get that one. <laughs> awesome. Or The Lost Ark of the Covenant. That would be cool, too. But that's, Yeah, and that's we'll have a movie. future episode <laughs> on, the lost, on the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, awesome. I, I can already hear the Indiana Jones music in my dun, head. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So that's uh, that's it for our feedback on the, the Paul Smith interviews. But we also have more feedback on some fan art we received. And the first comes from Hannah W. and says, uh, I tweeted that I was thinking about making some Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World fan art a few weeks ago and finally got around to making it. My husband and I love the show and our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, Hannah and Andrew. My original vision for this digital art is for a mug to be sold as merchandise for Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World to help supplement patrons, but you can just keep it if you'd like it too. I put it through a generic mug designer on Zazzle.com to show how it might look and have attached the photos here. I also attached the original PDFs to this email if you do actually want to use them. Thanks, and we'll... Keep up the good work on the show. Thank you, Hannah. Um, we really appreciate it. And the uh, the designs you, you sent for the mug look really cool. We've actually, in recent times, we've been getting more requests for merch. Um, and we're taking steps to move in that direction. We've been working, for example, on a design that'll be like for T-shirts and other things um, uh, that we're incrementally getting closer to finalization and interestingly your thoughts for how to do a design of my head are very similar to uh the one that we've been working on for a t-shirt um and so in addition to the t-shirt we hope to have out soon we may use yours as well so it looks really good we'll have a link to uh my personal website where we have the fan art from this episode so you can see both hannah w's fan art as well as the next one we're going to talk about yeah, and I'll put them in the video as well. We'll be able to see that if you're watching the video. And ah. just about Hannah's work, I have to tell you. So it's got Jimmy's face on the front. And on the back, it says, Howdy, Dom. And as soon as I saw that, I said to my wife, this is a mug I need. Like now, I need this coffee <laughs> mug. Because <laughs> how cool would that be? Uh, but thank you, Hannah. And uh, our next feedback comes from Ranks, who says, Hey, Jimmy and Dom, I hope you like my fan art. The word below the alien is my artist name, Ranks. 
I'm into dragons. Can you have an episode on a famous dragon, dragon sighting you know of? If not, can you make a video of you reacting to a dragon sighting videos on YouTube? Thanks. Please keep it up. Thank you, Rinks. I really appreciate the fan art. And one of the things I like, so Rinks's fan art has an alien uh, listening in a, t in a Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World t-shirt. Not the same design we're working on, but it's it, it's a Mysterious World t-shirt. And he's got like an iPod or, uh, you know, a little MP3 player he's listening to, um, presumably listening to the podcast. And he's got a little dragon around his shoulders, reflecting Rinks's interest in dragons. Um I like that um, even though m much of the fan art we get is based on photographs of me that are uh, already out there in public, I like that Rinks uh, did something uh, in a bit of a different direction that's still related to the show. I thought that was really cool. Um, and in terms of dragon sightings, well, I offer the same invitation uh to Rinks and, and to other people in the audience that we mentioned a few moments ago, which is the more resources I can get for research, the easier it is for me to do episodes on something. So I don't currently have any resources on reputable dragon sightings, but um, if uh, anybody knows of any, especially any books dealing with dragons or their purported existence in the modern world, especially Kindle books, because those are the easiest for me to use. Um, I would love to learn about them. And just a little plug for the Let Science, which is another podcast on the Starquest Network. They have a recent episode uh, just a couple weeks ago on a real life dragon that some paleontologists found, which is a kind of pterosaur that it was discovered. The fossil was discovered in Australia that uh, they said was like a flying uh, great white shark. <laughs> so a pretty terrifying thing, which uh, that might be a kind of dragon sighting. So very good. Thank well, you. And Rinks. ultimately, dinosaur bones is what creates the legends of the dragons all over the world down through history. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that uh, actually brings us to our last bit of the show, which is our mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? So we have a, a theme of the near future uh, this time and two things that are relevant to our near future. One, Google claims that they have may have made a time crystal. A time crystal is a kind of structure or object that is like a crystal, but it involves time. And it may have important technological applications in the near future. So uh, check out uh, the link to that article. Also, even though we have uh, now a, a U.S. Space Force, um, you know, there's a lot of cross-disciplinary stuff that happens in the uh, armed forces. Like, for example, the Navy has planes. Mm -hmm. You know that and take off on air, take off of aircraft carriers. Well, uh, one part of the Navy is the Marine Corps. And uh, and the Marine Corps is now prepping a space marine branch. So, uh, mm -hmm. yes, one day we may have space marines doing things and Excellent. you can read about that. So there was a great uh, short lived sci fi show on Fox about 20 years ago called Space Above and Beyond about yep. space marines. So uh, I don't know where it is online in one of the streaming services, but uh, it'd be fun to check it out. I, know, I, I look I know forward it, to it. I, I, <laughs> I know it's come out on uh, DVD, but I'm not sure yeah. if it's available for streaming right now. It, it was well done for its time, that's for sure. I remember how, right. they, how they blended um, 
like Earth military history and things with these aliens that we were fighting that were kind of insectoid. So instead yes. of the Red Baron, they had a an, an alien enemy pilot referred to as Chiggy Von Richthofen. Yes. Oh, the chi- Chigs. That's what they call yeah. it because they were bug-like. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Excellent. Like Chiggers, you know, the little biting insects. Yes, yes. So that brings us to the the end of our show. Where before we go, though, I want to uh, ask you, listener, what are your theories about the Greenbrier ghost and whether Zona really appeared to her mother? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world. And Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're doing our monthly two-parter, and this time it's going to be a patron-requested two-parter on the Great Flood. Was it worldwide? What really happened? What does the faith perspective say? And what does the scientific evidence point to? Excellent. Folks, follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where you can hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. I am so proud, if I allowed my family pride to be my guide. I volunteer to quit this fear instead of you in a minute or two. But family pride must be denied and set aside and mortified and mortified. My brain it teems with endless schemes, both good and new. For titty poo, for titty poo. But if I flip the benefit that I diffuse, the town would lose. Now every man to aid his clan should plot and plan as best he can. I heard one day a gentleman say the criminals who are cut into can hardly feel the fatal steel and saw a slain a slain without much pain. If this is true, it's jolly for you. Your courage grew to be a you. So proud And so although I'm ready to go Yet recollect what disrespected I neglect to the effect is indirect So I object And so although I wish to go And greatly pine to brightly shine And take the line of a hero fine With grief condign I must decline And go and show a both friend and foe How much you dare I'm quite aware it's your affair Yet I declare I take your share But I don't much care I'm a soldier, 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 I'm a
silence in a dull dark duck In a pestilential prison with a lifelong luck Awaiting the sensation of a short sharp shock From a chippy chippy chopper on a big black block To sit in solemn silence in a dull dark duck In a pestilential prison with a lifelong luck Awaiting the sensation of a short sharp shock From a chippy chippy chopper on a big black block A dull dark duck, a lifelong luck A short sharp shock, a big black block To sit in solemn silence in a pestilential prison And awaiting the sensation of a chippy chippy chopper Chop, 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 chop,